Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how you doing today? I am doing fantastic. I hope everyone out there who's listening, I hope they're doing fantastic. And Tim, I hope you're doing fantastic. How are you? Oh, well, thank you so much, Lance. I am doing great. Uh, it's it's a new year. We're in 2022. We're going to be talking about going to CrimeCon in a little bit. But Lance, this episode, it's a great one. We have on two authors, David Bushman and Mark T. Givens, they wrote a book called Murder at Teal's Pond, Hazel Drew and the Mystery that Inspired Twin Peaks. Lance, I know you're a huge Twin Peaks fan. So tell me about uh, about this book. Yeah, it was a real pleasure talking with these two gentlemen. And while they are both Twin Peaks fans and the forward is written by Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks, the book itself asks the question, who killed Hazel Drew and why? And that brutal murder took place in 1908 in a small town called Sand Lake, New York. And David and Mark do an outstanding job recreating the crime, that time period and the region with its questionable politics and its truly eccentric characters. It's further impressive to me that this is the first true crime book either of them has written. And after five years of researching the murder, the result is a page turner that I cannot recommend enough. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and you won't be disappointed. I guarantee it. Great. And the audiobook is available as well on Audible. And this is a new book. Came out in December of 2021. You did a great job with this interview, Lance. I was not a part of it. So this is, I think, the first one that you've handled uh, completely on your own on Crawl Space. And you did a great job. Fascinating case. Excellent book. Make sure to check it out. And Tim, you mentioned CrimeCon at the beginning of this, and we will be there. And if any listeners out there on the fence about whether or not to go, maybe this will be the deciding factor for you. You can use code CRAWLSPACE for a 10% discount off of your standard badge at CrimeCon.com. That's promo code CRAWLSPACE for 10% off your standard badge. And we really, really want to see you there. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on social media at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod on Twitter. And welcome to the show, David Bushman and Mark T. Givens. You two are the authors of a phenomenal true crime book called Murder at Teal's Pond. I just finished it. It's amazing. There's so much to talk about here. One is the actual crime that took place, the murder of Hazel Drew. The other is the inspiration for this book and your backstories as well but uh just wanted to introduce you david and mark thank you so much for coming on the show yeah thank you for having us and thanks for the kind words about the book ditto thank you so much lance nice to great to be on the show i mean the kind words are uh are are deserved because it's good uh it's a great book we do a lot of shows that every one of our shows for the most part it has to do with some sort of true crime event something that uh is unsolved or or mysterious and this is the the epitome of that the cast of characters that are involved in hazel drew's murder the politics the conspiracies the theories 
the speculation it it just it folds over into itself over and over again uh and it's riveting but um if you each could give a little bit of backstory on yourselves and then we could get into the the inspiration for this uh yes so i think we were talking a little bit before um we actually got on the air and all three of us are long-term twin peaks fans so that was uh both david and and my um entry into the story um a few years back they were uh getting ready to they announced they were coming out with a third season of Twin Peaks after a nearly 25-year gap, um, which rekindled our interests. Um, and I had some free time and some energy, and I started a small podcast looking into uh, some of the, you know, mysteries and unanswered questions and sort of stuff around Twin Peaks. And uh, that's how I found this. I did an episode looking into the origins of the uh, the Twin Peaks pilot. And there had been two or three over the years, quotes from Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks with David Lynch, um, about this uh, story that he had heard from his, his uh, grandmother when he was a boy up in uh, upstate New York. And he it was a girl whose uh, dead body was found by the pond. If you're familiar with Twin Peaks, it's the start of uh, uh, the Laura Palmer story. And that was for Mark Frost, half of the duo who created Twin Peaks, his kind of inspiration into the uh, story. So um, looking into that, I, you know, this was just a brief anecdote um, for the podcast. I spent some time digging a little deeper to see if this actually was a real thing. He had kind of cast it almost as a ghost, a ghost story that, um, that his grandmother would scare him with. Um, so to, to kind of find out if this was a real case and actually happened, I uh, just did some Googling like you can do nowadays on the Internet. Um, and the, the key thing really was why this hadn't been covered before. You know, uh, everything comes out around shows like uh, Star Wars and Star Trek, Twin Peaks, so forth, is that Mark Frost had uh, gotten the name wrong. He, he said the girl's name was Hazel Gray. And in fact, it was uh, Hazel Drew. So once we kind once we kind of got around that, we discovered it, there was a real case in um, 1908, and it was big news at the time. It was headlines uh, for weeks on end. Um, so I that got me looking into it. I was I was doing a podcast on it, and then at the same time, uh, David, who I can pass off to, he was also looking into uh, this for a book he was working on. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Hazel Drew part of it. It was that I was writing, researching and writing a book called Twin Peaks FAQ, and it too was sort of time to the return of the show on Showtime. And I didn't have a lot of time to um, delve into Hazel, uh, so but I kept it in the back of my mind. And then I was listening to Mark's podcast. You know, it's, it's just such an um, tantalizing story. This sort of unsolved murder that that helped inspire this groundbreaking TV show. So that was, and then I just reached out to Mark and, and said, you know, would you be interested in writing a book about this? And he said he would. And, and that's how we got together. We had, we didn't know each other until this book. Oh, okay. That's so cool. So Mark, what is your, uh, what was your podcast? Um, well, like I said, it was when the third season of uh, Twin Peaks was coming back. So I was kind of like amping up for it. Yeah. So I was looking back at the old uh, Twin Peaks, which kind of ended abruptly and on a cliffhanger and all that. And if you know anything about Twin Peaks, it's all about, you know, hidden messages and allegories, secret inspirations and all that. So my yeah. podcast, a little bit, a lot of podcasts will just kind of go through the episodes one by one and talk to them. I kind of like would dive into areas like this, uh, 
specifically different inspirations uh, for the show and uh, it's kind of unresolved things getting ready for the for the uh, third season. It's the podcast has been dormant. I think it was really my energy was kind of building up to the show. And then once I got involved with David on <clears throat> on this, my energy kind of shifted to the Hazel Drew story. Um, we have been threatening to kind of bring the podcast back uh, in a new form uh, in association with this story, actually, uh, over the last five or six years. We had a number of uh, interviews and roundtables and all kinds of interesting dis- discussions that we use for the book. But, you know, in their kind of raw form, we thought they're they're kind of interesting in and of themselves to get to know the characters and kind of uh, join along in the investigation. Um, you know, not everything in these uh, interviews made it to the book. We tried to, you know, we had to cut stuff to stick to the narrative. So there's a chance that uh, Dear Metal Radio could be returning. That's the podcast that from my end, where this all came from. So, okay, the podcast name is Dear Meadow, Dear Meadow Radio. Dear um, Meadow Radio, Dear, Dear Meadow in uh, Twin Peaks in the Fire Walk With Me movie is kind of like a, a parallel town that's like Twin Peaks, but not as good. So it's just a little joke on, on the radio <laughs> station. That was the joke. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and okay, so, and David, you uh, were listening to Deer Meadow Radio and you were a fan of Twin Peaks and that's what motivated you to reach out to Mark. And when did you when did you two decide this was the right thing to do? Let's let's get together and write a book. Uh, do you have the background there in, uh, in writing true crime books? Um, I, I've not written any true crime books. I, I've written other books, um, TV about TV. So there was that, and um, it was pretty easy. I, I think I just contacted Mark through Twitter or something, and he just said yes. Um, but I guess the larger question is, when did we realize that we had a book? And I, I can't, I can't remember the actual answer to that question. And I don't know if there was like some. Um, well, David, if I'm remembering correctly, when you called and introduced me, that was your suggestion. Do you want to write a book about this? <laughs> so that's yeah, my memory I mean, of it. In terms of our research, um, do you remember when we uh, sort of had an epiphany that th- this actually would will work? Um, I mean, my memory is even early explorations. It just seemed like there was so much there. Like we didn't know what the book, the end result would be, but you know, just pulling the newspapers um, day by day, every day had a new twist and a turn you could look into and was interesting enough from, you know, that, and it all added up to this whole that I, there was always like, let's get this story out there after we figure out what the story is. I think, you know, I, I mean, like I said, you were maybe in your mind, you were more testing the waters, but I, I kind of remember when you called saying, would you be interested in writing a book? Like I said, I naively was almost like, well, oh man, this is a great movie or a TV show or something like, you know, wasn't even necessarily thinking of a book. And then it that seemed like a, a more realistic option. So pretty early on. It's nearly a perfect book for a true crime fan with all of the elements that go into it. I'm actually really surprised that you fit all of those things in there and made it so cohesive, considering that you had to leave some of the elements out. Like there's so much, it's so dense and so followable too, because sometimes people will take on these true crime cases and they'll just try to pile it all in. And it's just like, I can't keep, you know, you can't keep the name straight sometimes and it just gets to be too much. And, uh, and you're trying to actually like follow clues and details. And, you know, as a, 
um, all of our listeners are true crime fans. They all want to untangle a knot. Like this is the murder of Hazel Drew is like this knot that they need to untangle or the murder of fill in the blank or the disappearance of fill in the blank. Like everyone wants to figure it out. And the way you two laid out all of the uh, characters and the clues and the theories is perfectly done. So well done on that. I, I know I sound like I'm just like fangirling right right now, but it, it is like impressive to see two people come together who didn't have a history of working together prior or writing true crime books and, and assemble this. So well done. I do want to break down the actual murder, but real quick, is it, is it not lost on the two of you that you're both named David and Mark respectively? (laughs) Did that, uh, when did you guys say like, well, that's odd. I don't think we did. Did we Mark? But I mean, I I always, it was always in my head. I always uh, pretty early up to, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. it is yeah. funny it's very funny yeah like what isn't that just like the most twin peaks ish thing about the whole yeah. thing is that <laughs> yeah and i think we there was other davids and bobs we kept running into and or, or davids and marks i'm sorry and then there was bob you know bob the killer bob the historian all kinds of twin peaks things uh we we tried to not you know we are twin peaks fans we tried to let the story you know we tried not to like have that take over the story in any way uh, because the story uh, in and of itself really stood on its own we thought but if you are a Twin Peaks fan and you read it uh, you're going to see all kinds of parallels and you know it's like a parallel uh, universe story almost to Laura Palmer. At one point we were looking at the possibility of a serial killer so I mean, I don't know, Mark, if you remember this or if it was mostly me who was doing this, but so we were looking for at murders in the vicinity of uh, Sand Lake around the same time. And believe it or not, I found one where, if I'm remembering correctly, the detective was named Cooper and the funeral home or something was called Lynch. And I really, I remember, I really wanted to get that in, but and Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but you told me you thought it was too much of a stretch uh, to, to bring I that. I don't remember murder. it, so yes, that makes sense. Yeah, then. <laughs> to bring that murder to bring that murder in because it clearly had nothing to do to make it to bring it into the it, story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it was still really strange. Um, so there were constantly things like that. Yeah. What's uh, equally uh, fun about the the way you tell this story is it starts off with the the forward by Mark Frost, and as you approach this book, as you first like open it and you start reading it, you're looking for those parallels to Twin Peaks, but very soon you start to forget that it was that Twin Peaks inspired it because the mystery is so is so like captivating. You guys have probably broken this down numerous times and you probably have have a rhythm to how you do this but however you want to explain without giving away any spoilers uh the murder of hazel drew uh feel free and and whoever wants to start go ahead but uh yeah like a synopsis on on her murder and and just like all of those elements sure on january this is oh, sorry july this is 19 or july of 1908 and on um that friday which was i think july 3rd hazel was really excited about a planned weekend trip. She had gotten the weekend off and she was going to go to Lake George. Um, and she was so excited that she actually waited at her dressmaker's uh, house while her dressmaker made her a blouse so that she could wear it. She wanted to look good in Lake George. So so she, it turns out that they, the next day, and I don't know, I, I guess it happened sometime the next day that her aunt, Minnie, who's like her one of her best friends, and this really cantankerous, cranky woman, talked her out of going to 
Lake George and going, instead they went to Schenectady, uh, which was up upstate New York near Sand Lake. And um, they spent the weekend there. She comes, they come back at around, they get back at um, Sand Lake. They spent the, the weekend with cousins. They get back around 10 o'clock on Sunday night. Um, they take the tr trolley car back and Hazel gets off first and then Minnie, Minnie gets off. And they, the next morning, Hazel's like in the backyard of the house, the Carrie house where she worked. And Mrs. Carrie comes to her and says, you know, I, I need you to do the, the laundry. And Hazel not only says no, but she says, and I quit. So if you believe everybody in Hazel's circle, and Mark will have slightly different um, takes on some of this, but if you believe everyone in Hazel's circle, there was no forewarning that she was going to quit. It was just um, a, something that shocked everybody, including Mrs. Carey. Um, she goes to Minnie's house to drop something off. Minnie later says that she didn't talk to her about her quitting. She didn't know that she quit. She didn't ask her why she was there on a Monday morning during the workday. Hazel tells her she's going across the Hudson River to a town called Water Villiet, which I always mispronounce and I probably just did again. But um, that's the last that Minnie sees of her getting, uh, heading toward that trolley to go over there. Police looked in uh, when, when Hazel, after they found the body, they, they went over to her friends uh, in that town and nobody had seen Hazel. So, it, and, and yet um, her father said somebody did see her. I, so there was contradictory evidence about whether she ever got there, but police don't think she did ever go to Waterville. So where did she go? She was seen in Union Station on Monday, so Monday, late Monday morning, by two people who know her and they have conversations with her. And one, one says, this is like at about noon, let's say, 11.30 noon. One says to her, where are you going? She says, oh, I'm going down the river. And the, the other one says, well, how far down the river? And Hazel says, um, I think she either said to New York or she got interrupted by the fact that her train was leaving and she had to go get the train. An hour later, like about an hour later, she's seen back at Union Station. So something happened there, but I believe that was the last sighting on Monday, right, Mark? The last sighting on Monday was when she came, or she dropped her, she placed an order at 1.15 for the uh, Westcott company to pick up her trunk at the house where she had quit working and have it delivered to her parents. So the last sighting on Monday was 1.15. Um, confirmed sighting. Nobody knows where she was from 1.15 for the rest of the day, the rest of the day and night. Until that night when she is seen out in the country. That's Tuesday. That's just the country, right? Tuesday. Um, Tuesday, there's, there's, I think, an unconfirmed sighting of her in town on Tuesday morning. And then again, not seen at all again until uh, uh, around seven o'clock on Tuesday night by some people who were driving uh, past the pond and saw a woman who was almost out, who was, who was almost definitely Hazel picking raspberries off bushes near the pond. And then at 7.30 that night, she's two, two men who are on their way into town run into her, one of whom knows her. So, so it's definitively Hazel. There's huge chunks of uh, time where nobody knows where, where she was, including Monday night. Like, where did she sleep? Nobody ever stepped forward to say she slept at our house or, or whatever. So nobody knows where she was during that time. And then between Tuesday at 7.30, when she's seen, 
and Saturday, right? Where Saturday morning when her body is found, nobody saw her. She, you know, um, nobody, um, nobody reported her missing. So she was, so the last time she was in on Tuesday night, her body's found on Saturday. Nobody knows, nobody reported her missing. You know, nobody ever, nobody knows how she got to Teal's Pond on Tuesday night or why she went there. What I leave out, Mark? No, that's, I mean, that's it. That's her, the mysterious last weekend when she's like kind of in and out and uh, people are seeing her, but no one really knows what she's up to. She's clearly up to something in this uh, bustle of activity that ends with her quitting in the morning on uh, that Monday. I think that's a good introduction to her last uh, activities. And that's what the investigators were dealing with, trying to fill in these gaps. But really what they, you know, it was the question of who who was this woman? You know, um, she's this girl from the city of Troy, which was this thriving metropolis at the time. She worked as a domestic servant since uh, the age of 14. She moved out of her parents' house and, and worked for these powerful men in, in the city of Troy, powerful families, uh, three different families. Um, but yet her body is, you know, mysteriously just found out in Sand Lake uh, about 20 miles outside of Troy, but out kind of in the country area, David led us up to, you know, how she got it, how she got out there, but no one knows why or what she's doing or anything like that. So, you know, they start to delve into her friends and family and relationships, you know, trying to look for some motives to answer all these questions. And what they find out is, you know, it's just as a complicated person. Um, she's this 20-year-old girl, beautiful, uh, independent, very social and outgoing, uh, like to take trips out of town, very good with her money, apparently, because she's always uh, dressed very nicely and seen around town. Um, and you, they start to get this uh, dual side of her, though. At, at first, when they're talking to her family and friends, they paint this picture of a uh, sort of uh, quiet, uh, stay-at-home, church-going type, not out late or anything like that, um, didn't have boyfriends and so forth. But the more they delve into it, she, she, if she didn't have a lot of boyfriends, she certainly had a lot of friends and a lot of different relationships. At one point, it comes out that there was this uh, chest that uh, I think was at her parents' house they found she had delivered there, um, and it contained dozens and dozens of postcards and letters from usually from men with uh, anonymous with using only their initials so that, you know, there's all kinds of questions because they couldn't find a motive. You know, it's that's kind of the the stark thing that, you know, we talked about Twin Peaks. That's the starting point. It's there's this beautiful young dead girl here. Somebody did really wrong and threw her in a in a pond. Um, and that's what kicks off Twin Peaks. And that's what kicks off this story or this narrative um, and investigators were never able to piece things together on, on how she got there. Never even really came close. We think we did. Um, there's still questions out there, but I think that's an overview of, uh, you know, what drew us into the case. And uh, really throughout this, you, you, they, the, the, the press and the investigators and, and then us kind of re, redoing it. You, that is the central mystery. Who is Hazel Drew? And you find out she had so many of these relationships and friendships. That's that's really how you discover her. You know, her Aunt Minnie had this weird relationship with her. Her uncle, uh, Will, who lived out close to the pond where she um, was found uh, dead, had this very weird relationship with her. So it's all these, um, you know, different characters that 
all intersected at, at uh, Hazel and somehow in there, her, her, you know, her death came about. I love the way it's presented uh, with the, the relationship between the investigators and the family and the press and how especially the investigators trying to <laughs> trying to balance like what the press knew and what the family knew and what, you know, potential suspects, they weren't going to release their names. Can you give like a backstory on how that all played out? Like even politically, how, how they were like the press was in, uh, influenced by all that? Yeah. So, yeah, that became part of it. I think when we discuss this, sometimes we we. Th- we talk about this from our perspective, there were, there were kind of two different things going on at first. We were trying to, to get down the story from the time, you know, uh, the two and a half weeks that it was in the press. Uh, it was in dozens and dozens of newspaper articles. Many of them or newspapers covered it. Many of them unique coverage. There was some, you know, like United or Associated Press where it's just a repeat of the facts, but then you would find this new sort of strain with all kinds of new little facts, maybe not solving the murder, but adding things. So this initial, I think that's what you're talking about. The the investigators at the time, the press played a big role. Um, it was kind of like the birth of the press in a way or the popular press. We go into that a little bit about the book and, you know, because that was going on at the time, it was kind of like the first tabloid yellow journalism was was coming around in this case. So some of the articles that you would read, you had to bear that in mind. You know, they might have some different facts that were interesting, but were they, you know, there were some inaccuracies there too that you had to um, consider. So for this first kind of phase of, uh, you know, just documenting everything, um, you're kind of just getting the facts at the time. When we now had the baseline or the basic story and it ended with them not solving the case, we had to move on and look beyond that. And when we did that, we're looking, part of that is looking back at the investigators and what they did and didn't do. And then we start, you know, looking at the investigators. I alluded to it, but there were oh, was local papers from Troy that were very good, you know, because they kind of already knew the their backyard and were good at the facts, whereas these um, tabloids from New York City would come in and, you know, just kind of, you know, raise muck and uh, uh, would 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 bring up new facts. But, you know, you had to kind of be careful, you know, they get names spelled wrong and all kinds of things wrong. If that, that was kind of your original question, um, it wasn't just or I guess 100 years later, it was uh kind of layers of a, a puzzle that you're you're bringing in all these facts from different areas from the original investigation which failed. So what did they do wrong? What questions did, didn't they ask? And uh, kind of the same thing with the press, which was in a way running its own uh, parallel investigation and, and judging the, the uh, initial investigation. Yeah, you did have the uh, whole yellow journalism thing going on. But also, if you, if you read about the history of the press, which I did as I was writing this, um, they, you know, they supposedly the era of partisan press had already ended. And we had um, come across a more conscientious press, but if you if you immerse yourself in the story of Hazel Drew, you'll see that that's clearly not true because Troy had certain papers who were very Republican leaning and certain papers who were very Democratic leaning, and the papers that were Republican leaning were very protective of the investigation because Jarvis O'Brien, the, the district attorney who led it, was a very popular Republican politician, and um, the Democratic papers were very were, were much harsher on the investigation than the Republicans. So 
there was a lot of that going on at, at the time. Yeah, and and I think that that is uh, really fascinating that the two of you were able to dig that deep into this uh, mystery uh, and get all of those elements in place. And not only like the murder, but the Republican-owned newspapers, the Democratically-owned newspapers, who was running for election, who won, who lost, and how, how that even ties into the story. Uh, you were already coming in over 100 years later. Uh, <laughs> where do you even start when when you're when you're doing an independent investigation on something so old well um we started really in two places and one was the troy library which had uh all the old troy papers and there were a lot of them there were like four different papers or they didn't have them all but they had enough for us to get a sense of um of the different types of, of how much coverage there was and how the coverage varied from from paper to paper or owner ownership to ownership. And um, there was that, and that, that was a really good place to start. And that led us in all sorts of directions. And then the other thing was Bob Moore, who's this, um, the uh, town historian in Sand Lake, he arranged for us to meet with people who were longtime residents up there. We talked to some of the ancestors of people who were sort of tangentially involved in the uh, like the, I mentioned, Hazel spent the weekend in Schenectady with her cousins. We spoke to her cousin's ancestors, or no, her what, whatever the opposite of ancestor is, descendants, who um, said, you know, if they had if they had known about this story while their ancestor was alive, they would have been able to ask her what did what was Hazel like that weekend? Did they talk about was there something on her mind? But they didn't know about it, so. They missed that opportunity because she passed away. So, but Bob Moore um, gave us on tours. He set up roundtable discussions. He introduced us to a guy by the name of Mark Marshall, who basically was like an investigator uh, for us. He 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 really got immersed in this crime and and. Um, is a great researcher and came up with so much stuff. He, he turns out he lives on the. Uh, grounds where the the foundation of the church that Hazel's uh, family attended is still there. So he felt some sort of personal connection to it, but he did amazing work. And so um, interview, you know, that's what got us started. And then you, all these things sort of, um, you come across all these different things and, and then that takes you in new directions, you know? So by the end, we're looking not just, we're not just looking at the newspapers during those two uh, two and a half weeks, but you know you want to look through the newspapers um, because you might come across the names of one of the the name of one of the people who were involved, or you might have to go back eight years to look at an election, or you might look at the um, there's there was some uh, discussion about what sort of medicine uh, he's they found pink lozenges in her room, or at least William Clemens did, and what could that have been? And then you start looking at all the crazy ads that the papers were running about all these miracle cures and things like that. So you just, it just sort of veers off in all these directions. And, you know, Mark in particular, if I can speak for him, these, we, we started to call these rabbit holes and, and you was really, really easy to get lost in them, uh, you know, because it's just so fascinating what you're finding. Yeah. Um, yeah. David covered it pretty well there. Um, it was, it was pretty cool. It was like a, uh, when we would go up there to, to Sand Lake, which we went numerous, numerous times, um, it was almost like a little community up there. Like, even if we weren't writing in the book, I think these 
you know, there were kind of these amateur detectives, Mark and uh, Bob. There was uh, Ralph and Priscilla, this brother and sister, who would always seemingly, every time we went out there, drive us over, you know, around the scene, uh, uh, across the mountain and so forth. And it just helped us immerse us in the case too and kind of help motivate us and be able to add some uh, additional texture. So yeah, and then in terms of uh, research, I always say like, if, you know, we didn't live in this time with the internet and stuff, I don't think we could have uncovered, uh, you know, half of this stuff that we did. We did go to the library and make photocopies and stuff uh, when we had to, but using uh, newspapers.com, ancestry.com, I have, you know, a, a dozen or maybe two dozen different family trees on, on my ancestry.com account for different characters and when we wanted to know more information about them. Um, so it's, you know, amazing the, the things that are uh, at your fingertip on the internet these days. There was, because our case took place in upstate New York, there's this one guy, I can't think of the name of the site right now, but um, just kind of a guy who for years has been scanning, um, he going around to local libraries in, up, in New York, upstate New York, and just scanning uh, old, old newspapers for his own site. So it's, you know, the sites crashes and all that sometimes, but it's an amazing uh, resource for not just like David said, especially like um, I, I think I was saying earlier, it was kind of two phases using the articles and uh, the original articles that were printed when the uh, case was active. But then, you know, so many uh, uh, rabbit holes, as, as David said, trying to find out if, if you thought this guy might have been involved in the murder, then Googling, you know, and uh, some of these people were prominent people, her three employers were all very prominent men. Um, two of them had run for mayor. One was uh, the city engineer. Another was city treasurer. Um, so you can find things out about them um, just going back and who their friends were and who their associates were and what kind of things they were involved with. Uh, did they have scandals uh, in their background that, you know, may have gotten them into some kind of trouble? And we, we found uh, lots of evidence about that and kind of speculated how that might have uh, contributed to, to Hazel's death. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun um, uh, and, a, and really a combination of on the Internet, just spending hours Googling and these different sites. And then what I really think helped our book a lot was being able to uh, go up there, uh, spend time up there, walk around. You know, we spent time at the pond. And I think David and I both have sort of geographic and spatial limitations. So being able to go up there and not just read about the dimensions and so forth and uh, see where the body was and all that kind of stuff it was very, very helpful. And uh, the people up there were, yeah, we can't thank them enough, really. You mentioned Roger and Pat too, like they, they are uh, descendants of the, of the uh, Taylor family, which was the Hazel's mother's family. And, and they had genealogy, done, done genealogy and that really helped us too. And the, the other thing that Mark didn't mention was books. I mean, we, I, I mean, I read books on like upstate New York folklore and just uh, it's a great book by Jack Casey called the, I think the trial of Batch J about a political um, scandal up there in 1896 that wound up having uh, some impact we think on, on the Hazel Drew investigation. So uh, I read, and you know, my, I know Mark was reading at one point about Teddy Roosevelt and all the Republican, the state politics and, uh, you know, I learned about things like the APA, the American Protective Association, which I never even heard of before. And it's sort of it's sort of so resonant in the age of January 6th and, and uh, 
Trumpism, Trumpism, I guess you'd call it. But, you know, it was just, you know, we we had to read about we didn't have to, but it was good that we did. And we we loved reading about it. Maine Fay was a very famous prostitute who um, a madam who um, worked out of Troy. And there was a great documentary by her by a couple of uh, film writers, one of whom name I can't forget because it's Penny Lane um, called Sitting on a Million, which was really helpful. So there were so many, you know, just uh, absolutely compelling stories that, um, you know, some of them we couldn't even get in the book because they weren't relevant enough. But um, we just learned so much. It was it was so much fun, like Mark said. And and this the city of the city of Troy just walking around there for a variety of reasons in many ways has, you know, in a lot of places, it's just the same, you know, it's the same architecture and they haven't changed. And so it's like you, you were immersed in the time. I think there's a new um, show coming out on HBO called the Gilded Age. And it's all, you know, it's set in New York city, but they always go to Troy when they need something uh, from that time period. So that was really helpful too. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Yeah, that is super cool. And uh, what an amazing experience to have and, and you know, walk away from, you know, with all of this new stuff, like you saying you didn't know that some of these things existed. Did you have access to uh, like court transcripts and autopsy reports? And did you work with law enforcement on any level? <laughs> yeah, we were largely unsuccessful in finding any kind of records. Um, we looked a lot um, and would get different leads and stuff. I remember when I uh, first started, I think it was the county clerk or county registrar's office. Um, I was up there by myself one time and I kind of talked my way into um, going, being able to go down into it. And it was kind of, it was pretty cool. It was like uh, they, you know, they were very uninterested in uh, helping me or showing me around this particular person who was help who was assisting me, not interested in the case at all. So, you know, some people kind of get into it and uh, want to know the details, but this guy was kind of like, unlocked the cage and here it's in there somewhere and pointed and it was kind of like the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, warehouse with just files everywhere and I eventually like found you know if there was something where it would have been and never was able to find something and um, but in the years subsequent years you know we talked to all kinds of people about where uh, any records from that time would be today and there was just a history of fires and floods and things got moved. And I don't think we ever 100 uh, percent completely ruined that, uh, eliminated the, the possibility that they are somewhere. But we were unsuccessful. 
Um, and, and we were also hindered by the fact that this, uh, this never went to um, trial or there was never any, anyone charged or anything like that. So there, there wouldn't have been um, a court records, which is when I got down in the basement, I think that's what I was looking at to see if there was anything. And there probably wouldn't have been in that case anyway. There was an inquest held. So we had some hope of that or some uh, case files. And there was at one point, we, we David and I returned to the, the county clerk's office because um, they had found something, you know, I don't know if we, we stirred them up, but they were uh, cleaning and moving things around. And they did find um, some additional case files that I wouldn't have seen um, that he was, you know, from that time period. So we, you know, got in there, he gave us gloves and we were very excited and, you know, put these back. Um, and it was from the like maybe 1880s and 1890s. And then there was like a gap and then it was the 1920, you know, something like that. But our, our particular run, there was a, it was not there from 1908. So that was disappointing. So, yeah, we never, we, we would have loved to, we did eventually, and this was, it ended up being like nothing. I can't remember if we got it in time to get it in the book, David, or if we even bothered, but there was all this talk of in, on the Sand Lake side, uh, out in the country, the, the corn or mortuary, um, where they took her body. There was a descendant, um, that Bob Moore, the historian up there knew a descendant of this coroner, or I'm sorry, mortician. Um, who said they had, you know, some sort of records and we eventually did get it. And um, it was literally just, you know, from the funeral book or something. And it, it had her name, you know, Hazel Drew on this date. So it, it wasn't very helpful in cracking uh, the case. But yeah, if those records ever could somehow be turned up, uh, that would be very, very interesting. We did actually, and I think it was very early on, talk to the district attorney, um, their office up there and this was years ago. I remember talking to someone over the phone and there was some um, mild interest in because it's a, you know, it's a homicide. It's unsolved. It's still on the case or it's still on the books. There was some interest, you know, in revisiting the case, but we never uh, really followed up on that. But uh, that would be interesting as well. Yeah, the, the uh, inquest was really um, heavily covered by a bunch of different papers and we got a lot of that's the closest we got to any sort of official transcript. They quoted the testimony and the interrogations at length, and that was really uh, helpful uh, to us. But um, and I, I had uh, some. I knew somebody who knew a retired FBI guy who lived up in uh, who lives up in Eagle Park, Sand Lake area, and he sort of volunteered to help us for a while. And we were sort of hoping, and I think he did talk to some people he knew, and they were all just telling him that that they just that there just didn't uh that nothing existed at this point you know i mean we we were looking for like hey the dress she was wearing when she was uh murdered and um you know any sort of physical evidence whatsoever the possibility that we might be able to do some dna testing and and it was just really hard to come up with uh any sort of official Document documentation. Well, as you're uh, researching it and and looking into each of these characters, was there any character that I'm sure there was that stood out and and the two of you were just like having a good time learning about this this character? There's a lot of crazy characters. I mean, her yeah. uncle William Taylor, who lived at a farmhouse near the pond, was just you know there was this one story about this guy about how his his wife had um had and I shouldn't laugh, but his wife had died and. And then he tried to take his own life. But at one point, I guess he was lonely and he 
went to the house, the farmhouse of one of his neighbors who barely knew him. And he walked in and like said something like, will you marry me? And she goes, no. And he goes, okay. And, and walks out and, and leaves. So he was a really strange guy and um, clearly not, not high on the chart of social skills. And, and Minnie was crazy too. I mean, Minnie would like bark at the reporters and tell them to stop bothering her and, and, uh, and that she, um, she wasn't gonna tell them the names of Hazel's friends because she didn't want to get them in trouble. Uh, she wouldn't talk uh, to, to investigators for a long time. And finally, one day, supposedly, they broke her down and she almost collapsed and had to be like escorted out the building. So there was that. The one character that I would say, if I, again, can I speak for both of us and Mark can also comment on this. The one character I think we had the biggest disagreement about was the head investigator, the um, DA Jarvis O'Brien. Um, I guess, Mark, you can tell more about that, but that was probably the one character who we, we had some different thoughts about Hazel too, but, but Jarvis was kind of like somebody we went, we probably got into arguments about. <laughs> uh, Mark. <laughs> debates, good nature debates. Uh, yeah, that's, I, I back up what David said on, on his choices there. Um, in terms of Jarvis O'Brien, the lead investigator, yeah, we had a difference of opinion, I guess you could say, um, on how how good a job he he did with you know under his circumstances and maybe what his motivations might have been, and we you know that was a little bit of a challenge to we had to come up with something you know we had to agree with how we presented him in the book, so it was a bit of a if we were doing it might have been a little uh, a little bit different perspective but he was an interesting character he was kind of on on the surface anyway this you know up and comer um david mentioned we looked into did some research on the at the time it was kind of the progressive movement and um he was he seemingly to me was uh, kind of part of that aligned with that so you know it was there's a lot of politics going on but politics back then was way different you know it was still dirty and, and everything like that but what we think of as left and right and uh, Democrat and Republican, it was a different thing back then. Um, so, yeah, he, he was an interesting character. I was just say it was different, but it's also like the to me, what one of the things that's really interesting about it is the the way it resonates today. Like you take uh, like like O'Brien uh, was a Democrat, like like most Irish Catholics were. Uh, and then when he went to Troy, because in order, I, I believe, in order to advance his career, it had to be a Republican. He became a Republican. Um, and to me, that's like, you know, Ted, you know, he's not Ted Cruz. I'm, most people are better than Ted Cruz. But, um, but you know, Ted Cruz is like, Donald Trump is like a, a psychopath. And then the next thing you know, because his future depends on Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is, uh, you know, second coming of, of God. So, uh, there was, you know, I and I just found that there were like these resonant, this, this, there was this resonating. The, the point I guess I was making, David, was in terms of Republicans and Democrats is it's it's not the same alignments today. So if the fact that it may look like we're going after a political party has nothing to do with anything, it's it's, uh, right. you know, the, right. the like I said, Republicans at the time were this coalition of sort of the wasps of old but also this progressive movement of Teddy Roosevelt, these up and comers, the Democrats at the time were kind of 
had res responded to the Republicans being in power so for so long and had kind of taken power with a you know, surge of Irish immigration and so forth. Um, and again, this is all <laughs> the background stuff we, we didn't want to like fill the book with, but it was interesting stuff. And Dave, you know, David's assessment of Jarvis O'Brien was he came to Troy, became a Republican because, you know, for political reasons, but with my research, with the stuff I was looking into, this was a period when that did happen. Um, long time people who were Democrats because they were Irish, because there was this progressive movement and both parties had been kind of corrupt for years and years. Uh, at this particular time in 1908, it was under Teddy Roosevelt and so forth, but the Republicans were really the ones pushing uh, the progressive movement. Now there were still Republic, old school Republicans holding on to power. So in our research, looking at articles and their, you know, Jarvis O'Brien's uh, campaigns, we, we looked into them and those kinds of things. Um, and my take on after looking at all that was he was part of this kind of uh, progressive movement. David's a little more uh, suspicious about that. Um, but, you know, interesting character. These are all real people and everything. Yeah, that would be a place that we disagreed because, um, I mean, as it turns out, I mean, his partner, his law partner or his former law partner or whatever was a big Republican guy. So I, I, I would I would think that he was much more politically motivated than Mark would. And I think that pretty much sums up our difference of thinking about Jarvis is, uh, um, you know, how um, pure or politically motivated he was. He's, but Mark said a really interesting guy from a really interesting family that Mark compares in the book to the Kennedys, which, you know, very accomplished family with a lot of pressure on the younger uh, sibling to, to do well. And, um, and O'Brien had this like really, uh, again, you described him really well physically. He's got this like walrus mustache, clearly there was a side to him that was very sort of theatrical. I always think, uh, I always think Kurt Russell and Tombstone. That's my image of uh, O'Brien. <laughs> That's perfect. And I, I love, a, I, I wrote that question down um, before this interview and I was like, ah, that's going to be such a throwaway question. But it, it it's, the answer was great, and we even got a little glimpse of like the, uh, the the healthy debate right there, and which is fascinating to me that two people can come together and write a book like this, have those debates, and and be like, okay, well that was a you know we're we're just fielding each other's opinion in order to properly showcase what we're talking about, and and you know like you can have a compromise there, uh, and you said that you're pretty sure you solved it, and I'm certainly not going to give away a spoiler here. By the time you do get to the end of the book, everything that you have presented, and then you give your conclusion it makes a lot of sense uh how did the two of you come together to compromise or was it even like was that even debated or were you guys on the same page when you said yeah she she did this this and this and i think what impressed me the most is that you started to look away from the details that were there and you you went to well why wasn't this happening like if she if she wasn't here, why would you know? Like you were looking at the holes, and instead of instead of looking at the uh, the the tangible elements, the, ho the holes instead of the donuts to use a Twin Peaks uh, analogy. But but go ahead, Mark, because I think you, I think you 
took uh, it took a little more convincing of you than it did of me to. Yeah, well, I don't think we had, you know, by time it was time to write it and everything. I don't think we had much disagreement here, you know, in terms of the facts and stuff, maybe how we presented them or something like that. Um, but I think you're I, I think you're uh, right, Lance, that we I don't know. This is our first attempt at this. And but we didn't go in with like pet pet theories kind of we just were interested in the story by the time we knew the story so well then we wanted to you know find out it, this was real thing so you know there was a real killer and everything that was never revealed so it was just exactly how you said it's kind of like the scientific method or something just asking the questions and um using all these resources uh, available inclu including the community and other people who contributed to this to just keep asking questions of things that don't make sense and i don't know we didn't even really a lot of the time talk about you know who the killer was uh we're, there was always things to look into always questions uh surrounding that you know from her mysterious timeline and just tons tons of questions uh surrounding hazel all of which hopefully would help answer it um so that's that's the things we were focused on and then we just we didn't plan on it but we ended up spending five or six years on this so you know just through all that time certain things fall off and certain things become more important and you know even the things that fall off we we didn't throw them away necessarily they were still interesting and um you know part of this is all the different suspects and all the red herrings and everything so there's all kinds of you know, missteps and, and wrong turns in the, in the book. Um, but for the end, for the solution, we, we tried to get rid of all the stuff that either the investigation we, we felt, you know, did a pretty convincing uh, job of, of addressing already and eliminating or, or what have you. And then we focused on the questions they didn't ask, you know, I, the, a basic thing without, again, thank you. We don't want to give hardly anything away about the, the solution and so forth but you know we noticed uh fairly fairly early on with all the suspects and characters that the investigation and the press looked at very little very little attention was given to her uh three employees that i think i mentioned earlier all very powerful men um tied into the political the the republican party at the time um wealthy and so forth and you know if there was a murder today a young girl i you just would think the the press would be you know and she lived with these you know this is she didn't live with her family she lived with these people's families so other than you know being identified in in the paper and maybe a quote or two they were not a part of the story at all so uh like i said we were fortunate they their lives were part of the national record or, you know, the newspapers of the time. So we were able to look into those areas and then see things, things would pop up that were, well, wait a second, you know, in terms of we're looking for motivation or different things. Uh, and so these kind of abstract questions we would get hits on and, you know, had uh, Mark Marshall, we always, we, we can't thank enough for all the um, efforts he put into this. That's where we, I guess, methodically got to where we got to at the end. And I really wish we could talk about that last chapter. Um, we've done a couple of these interviews. It's kind of frustrating to, at this stage anyway, we don't want to give that away because um, the whole the whole book kind of builds on that um, as it just kind of laid out. But yeah, I think we didn't have, what we came up with in the final chapter, that the sort of area if you're looking at the whole book, there's all kinds of, you know, her, 
her friends out in the country, her bromances and, you know, her employers, whatever. But the area that we kind of focused on in the solution that we think was the, the pivotal piece was not a, a, not a thing I initially, the first couple of years, I kind of scoffed at it, actually, that it was too, I'm like, come on, you're just trying to sell a, you know, sell a book or something. Um, but it, it turned out to look very plausible the closer um, we looked at it. So, you know, um, I don't think David and I have large disagreements on the on that aspect of the book. We made about Jarvis O'Brien and <laughs> a few other areas. Uh, but yeah, we kept an open mind. We, we never wanted to like, oh, this is the solution and let's build the book around that. It was definitely the other way around. Um, the solution chapter came, I think, very late in the day, I guess, you know, in terms of not just writing, but really thinking about and putting everything down. Well, I feel like if I talk any longer about it, I will end up slipping and giving something away. Thank goodness that this is a, not a live program and we can just edit it out. But uh, I just have a couple more questions. My One of my questions is unrelated to this. David, you uh, you are an author of other books, one of them being uh, a co- Conversations with Mark Frost, which I'll admit I have not read yet, but I plan to. What What's he like? I'm sorry to just like geek for a second, but... This is as close as I'm going to get to Mark Frost, probably. <laughs> In a platonic way, I love Mark Frost. I think he's really, really smart, really, really generous. Um, I think he's, um, you know, one time I said to him, um, what, you know, everyone calls David Lynch a surrealist. What, what do you, what do you, what term do you think would best describe you? And he, and he said humanist. And um, I think his values are just so, uh admirable and um you know and i've read and i've not just seen tv a lot of mark's tv work but i've read his prose i, I in fact for the for this book the conversations more first i read everything that he'd written and he's a and if even if you read our forward i think our forward is so good i couldn't i couldn't have asked for a better forward and i think it's just so beautifully written um so i'm kind of like fangirling here myself but um you know he's just um He's really smart and um, really strong values and um, just a really interesting guy. And and um, I'm so glad, you know, that I got to know him. That's awesome. And and uh, for the both of you, what were your thoughts on season three? Um, I, I I was a big fan. I thought it was great. I tried, I tried to go in, even though we did a podcast speculating on this and that. I'm not one to kind of speculate on what they're actually, you know, whatever they give me, I tried to not have expectations, I guess. And I, I figured it wasn't going to be like the original two seasons. So um, it was not, <laughs> um, you know, if you go and look at uh, David Lynch's most recent stuff, like Inland Empire, I was thinking it would be a little more like that, um, darker and colder and a little more sterile. Um, and it was, so I enjoy that too. I, I enjoyed the old stuff, but I thought it was uh yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's Monday morning quarterbacking, but if it was closer to the the first two seasons, I don't know. It, you know, it might not have uh, might have seemed a little like The Force Awakens or you know something like that. So I'm glad they did something different, and uh, I thought it was really good. I feel like you're asking me, like a, I'm like Ron DeSantis answering if I've been vaccinated or not, but um, <laughs> because I'm sort of avoiding the question, but um. Because I think I haven't watched it since it aired, uh, since it was originally on. And um, I'm not sort of dying to do that either. But, um, you know, certainly I thought it was um, really um, 
interesting and captivating when it was going on. I, I think, um, and you know, I'm a big fan of Lost Highway and um, I've seen Inland Empire for probably five or six times. I don't have any problem with that. I, I guess I do wish that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I thought, I, you know, I missed some things about the old Twin Peaks, but I also thought that the new one was was great. And I also think, and I asked Mark Frost about this, I thought that there was some retro fitting or there were some things that happened in, in like the thing, the whole thing with Sarah Palmer and the, um, the frog moth, Mark called it. You know, if, if I mean, so many people um, saw Sarah one way during the course of the first two seasons and Fire Walk With Me as this woman who was kind of in this really difficult situation and um, where her the man she loved was abusing, uh, you know, her daughter and she, that she knew about it and just refused to acknowledge it. But then all of a sudden, you know, now she's been possessed by a demon since like the 1950s, or maybe it was a latent demon, I don't know. But, um, and, you know, I felt like Mark, there, there, there were things that were difficult to get him to comment on. And I think partly that's because and we talked about this, Twin Peaks was not one person's vision, you know? And, and he's, you know, he always, people would point out like mistakes and stuff. And he would say, there's, there's more than one canon. And that would really upset people. But, you know, David Lynch goes off and makes Fire Walk With Me or, or you know, parts of the return and, or throws out part of the script of the season two finale. And nobody's like up in arms about that. So I think that their visions were slightly different and that there, I do believe there is more than one canon to Twin Peaks. I think even though as a fan, that kind of bothers me, I think we just have to accept it. So there were things that I think veered away from what from what we had come to to know or expect or learn. But I think that's just one of the idiosyncrasies of Twin Peaks is that there's there's never going to be one one universe where everything fits right into place. Yeah, well, well said. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a hybrid of what the two of you said. I, I watched it, the, the season in its entirety one time and I was like, this is awful. And then I, then, and then as the days went on, it just wouldn't leave. Like I, it kept like popping in my head. It got under my skin and I was like, now nah, there's something else there. And that's the way it is with a lot of the things that, uh, David Lynch and, and Mark Frost create. Like it's all wrapped up in something else. So I was like, I got to do it again. So I went back and I think maybe 10 minutes into the first episode, I was like, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. And I've seen the, I've seen the season like probably three. I think I'm, I, I just started like watching random episodes the other day just because I was like, Oh, I got to see that episode again. Cause it's so good. I mean, there's some stuff that's like truly mind boggling, but even that is like, well, I'm having a good time trying to figure this out. Like where was, where were their heads at with this? But Really, I, I loved the end of it. I, I loved the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, I don't know how else they could end it. Something like that where it's, well, what what the hell happened? Who knows? But <laughs> yeah, like, that's how it leads you. Yeah. Like, you know, it's going to end, too, because, you know, like the time frame is coming to an end. And the whole time you're like, don't you do this to me? Don't you do that? And then they do. And it goes exactly where you didn't want it to go, but you wanted it to go there. And then it was like, ah, damn. <laughs> But it's yeah, totally fulfilling. Yeah. I think I still kind of I don't I don't think they'll do anything, but I think David Lynch will do something. You know, he had that like Wisteria Lane or something in development and it had a lot of the same people. I don't know. I think he doesn't, you know, in terms of like the modern era of 
the the MCU and ex- expanded universe. I think he's got in his in his head all his stuff is kind of connected. Like if you watch Inland Empire and and Lost uh, Lost Highway and so forth, it, it seems like some of those characters, you know, were buddies with each other from the lodges and all that. So I don't know, you know, and how it ended was kind of like the Twin Peaks universe was dead or something in a way. So you know, he could take a couple actors that's them i don't know i i think we'll see something weird come out of it but uh probably not season four and laura and laura is not dead uh so well yeah that's what they say but who, who can you trust there everything. i don't know uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's fantastic yeah well this has been a great conversation i really really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this um the book is murder at teal's pond i can't recommend it enough you guys are you guys are great at what you do there's the book right there yeah great at what you do david bushman and mark Evans. thank you so much thank you lance thank you so much thank you lance 